This letter of Paul to the Galatians is a wonderful defense of what the gospel actually is, what the good news of Jesus Christ actually is. I suppose if you wanted the fullest explanation of the gospel in the New Testament, that would be found in the letter to the Romans. But here you have this strong defense of what the truth of Christ is. And you say, well, why did it need to be defended? Well, friends, wherever the true gospel goes, there'll always be opposition. There'll always be those enemies that try and ruin and hinder and divide and undermine the gospel. You see, the gospel is really a mystery to all people until God is pleased to work and to grant life, to give to them eyes to see and ears to hear until they're born again. And the gospel is the wisdom of God and not one of us is born naturally with that wisdom. And the discernment and the wisdom and the understanding has to be given by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. We must be born again. That's the, the great cry of the New Testament. And even then, even in our reading, we see that we can go wrong through our own foolishness, ignorance, and at times inability to recognize what the gospel is. And that's what we have before us here in Galatians 2. And Paul is really describing an incident that happened a, a number of years before he's writing to the church of Galatia. And he speaks of what must have been a very painful occasion when he had to face up to Peter himself and make a stand for the truth of the gospel of grace. You know, you think that that same Peter had been so mightily used of God on the day of Pentecost to, to preach with great power and 3,000 are saved. You know, this man who had been through so much, God had dealt with him, who had been made into an outstanding spiritual leader, one of the great heroes of the truth of Christ in the early church. And yet Paul has to tell us, no doubt with great sorrow, that there was a time when even, even Peter lost sight of, of what the gospel was for a moment. And it greatly affected his, his living, his behavior, his attitude. And so Paul has to stand up to his very face because Peter had stumbled and was acting in a way that was not consistent with the truth of Christ. He'd fallen into a way of acting which was undermining the gospel of grace. And so this letter to the Galatians in one in which Paul is contending for the gospel once again, defending the truth, standing for the wonder of sovereign grace. And our text tonight is verse 19, and it's a, it's a stunning statement, but it is so concise and profound we're going to have to take some time to actually understand what Paul is saying. He says, I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Now, the verses that follow are often the ones that are, are more well known. But we need to consider this one in verse 19. And there are a number of things that I want you to see. And the first is this. The law of God is our greatest problem. The law of God is our greatest problem. You know, I wonder if I was to have asked you that question before, what is the greatest problem that people face? You know, if you're a believer or if you're familiar with gospel things, you might say, well, the greatest problem that people have is that they're sinners. And therefore, sin is the greatest problem. But let us take a step deeper. Why is sin man's problem? 
you know, Paul helps us to look at that issue here in our text. You see, sin is man's problem because of something called the law of God. And we need to understand that sin has no meaning apart from the law of God. You know, animals don't sin because they're under no law. But man created by God under the moral law, and that's our problem. And in a manner of speaking, it is the greatest problem which mankind has. That's God's law. Why? Because the law of God does two things. It condemns us as being guilty, and it tells us that it has the power of death. Now, when you think about that, that's a terrifying thing. Every day we live, every moment we live, we live under the authority of God's moral law. So every time we diverge from the, the moral law in thought or word or deed, we are guilty in the sight of God. I wonder if you've ever realized how serious that position is. You know, sometimes our, our conscience is, is pricked on those things and tells us that. Other times our consciences are asleep or so dead that they don't tell us. But every time we go against the Ten Commandments of God, we are injuring fresh guilt. And in that sense, therefore, the law, the moral law, is the greatest enemy that man has. And when we realize that, we see that what we need to do desperately is to find a way to get into a condition in which we are no longer under the condemning power of God's moral law. You know, if we are to be saved, we must find somewhere, we must somehow find a way in which we can live our lives without being under the condemnation of the law of God. Now, there is a place, and there's one place, whereby we are no longer under the authority or the command and the jurisdiction of the moral law. Thank God that there is. But before we get to that, let me show you more of the problem. You see, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is a problem for each and every one of us until we are brought to salvation. Until we are saved, we are under the authority and condemnation of the moral law. You know, I can't emphasize that enough. People don't understand it. You know, they, they talk about God and they talk about religion as though it's just some option to add into your life. You know, if it works for you, fine. You know, but it's not for me, thanks. And I can live my life and go on and the idea is we're all free to choose what we want and, you know, whatever works, you've got your ideas, I've got mine, let's go our separate ways, agree to differ. But friends, this is not a matter of opinions or options or discussion, kind of throwing around a few ideas. You know, if we are not saved, if we are not found in Christ this night, our whole life in this world is under the moral law of the Holy God. You are accountable to a holy God for every thought, every word, every deed, and every time anything about you breaks the moral law, it only increases your guiltiness before God. You know, and again, sometimes, you know, our consciences are, are pricked with that, but often because conscience is fallen and weak, it throws up no warning. It doesn't tell us the, the urgency of our situation that, Death is now upon the road for each one. And after death, the judgment, and without Christ, eternal condemnation and punishment. And that if we're, we're not saved in this life, we'll be lost forever. It's an extremely serious problem. And it really doesn't matter what your opinions are. That's the reality. This is what you face. The Word of God says, 
the Lord is our adversary in that sense. You know, when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, agree with your adversary quickly in case he arrests you and puts you in prison. And part of the meaning of the adversary there is the holy law of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard the Ten Commandments? Have you ever heard them? Ever thought about them? You know, they used to be fairly prevalent in certain circles, but not so much now. Let me remind you of them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know, that's a, such a, a, an important one for today. We need to be very careful of how we speak about God. There's so much mild blasphemy that goes on. Be careful how you use the sacred names of God. He's listening. You know, and the moral law condemns us every time we deviate in any way from the absolute requirements of holiness in our speech. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You know, the day is God's, and our minds should be dedicated to him and delighting in him. Honor your father and your mother, especially when we are young. We must be respectful to our parents and obedient to them. You know, if we are not, then we are breaking God's law and incurring guilt upon our souls before God. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet, meaning having a, a secret, inward, unspoken desire for what is not ours, to take away from somebody else's goods for our own benefit selfishly. All of that is to break the moral law. You see, the law is our greatest problem. I wonder, dear friend, if you've ever thought about that. I wonder if the point has come home to your conscience that all of us are created under the authority of God's holy law. And the moral law, the Ten Commandments, it's not just a, a few ideas plucked out of the air by random or, or put down by Moses. The moral law is given to man because it accords with the very nature of God himself. The Ten Commandments are based on the, the very nature of, the, of being and constitution of God himself. The moral law is what it is. The commandments are what they are because God is what he is and who he is. And he could require no less of us. These are the standards that God requires because he is God, the most holy, the most awesome, reverent being. And that's where we must begin that's where true religion begins. It's how people are converted. That's why Martin Luther was converted. Because he realized his, his guiltiness before God and he, he was desperate to find a way out of his dreadful state and going to the priest and confessing sins. Well, that didn't help. Fasting, that didn't help. Inflicting pain on himself, that didn't help. All those things were useless. It was only when he found the truth of our text did peace with God come to him? You see, that's our problem. You say, well, what's the answer? What's the solution to our problem? Well, our text tells us, becoming dead to the law is God's salvation. You say, well, what does that mean, becoming dead to the law? Well, if I can find the place where the moral law can no longer accuse me or condemn me or bring me to the grave, then I am safe and I am saved. You say, well, where? Where do we go? Well, there is a place. And the place is to 
get into that righteousness which Jesus Christ alone can give to us, which Jesus Christ alone can impute to us and offers to us in the gospel. And if we can get into that position in which we have the righteousness of Christ clothing us, then the law cannot condemn us. If I am righteous in Christ with his righteousness given over to me, then the moral law cannot accuse me and cannot condemn me and cannot harm me anymore. And that's what the gospel is all about. As soon as the person by grace believes in Jesus Christ as their savior, the effect of that is that they move from being under the law to not being under the law. It is a movement from guilt and condemnation to being right with God and justified by faith. We have peace in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, part of that process as God works is that we're brought to see the danger that we are in outside of Christ. And if you're outside of Christ this night, you are in great danger. The danger is extremely serious because to live under the authority of the law, to die under the authority of the law is eternal punishment. It is to lose your soul, as it were, to go into a lost eternity where there is no further hope. That's what the Apostle Paul is explaining. Whereas now, by grace, he's dead to the law, which means he's no longer accountable to the law. He's no longer in the position where he has to answer the law's demands. Through salvation in Christ, the law cannot condemn him, cannot accuse him before God. You say, well, how did he get to that place? How did he come to this condition in which he is dead to the law? Well, he says, I, through the law, died to the law. So what does that mean? Well, in the purposes of God, the Ten Commandments impress upon us the danger. As God begins to work, you know, elsewhere, Paul speaks of the law being a schoolmaster. You know, in Roman times, a schoolmaster had a cane or a belt, and he would accompany the student from their home to the school through the day, and then he would take the student back to their home again. And if the student stepped out of line, they would be flogged and beaten. That was their role, and they were paid by the parents to do it. Serious discipline. And Paul takes this image and he says that the moral law plays the part of the schoolmaster. In other words, the law accompanied him everywhere and punished him and flogged him, as it were, and made him feel that conviction, that pain, that anguish, that terror of breaking the law, the realization of the condemnation of it. You know, we call this conviction of sin. It's a, a distinct condition of mind of heart, of soul, and what brings a person to being convinced and convicted of their sin as to be afraid of our accountability before God. And the law as our schoolmaster brings us into an understanding of our position, of the guilt and the guiltiness of our sin before God. And it's not a cruel thing. In fact, it's a very gracious thing that God should bring that. And the love of God to show the person the true state before him. You know, in our fallen, ruined, sinful state, we have no interest in God by nature. You see that all around us today. No interest, no thought of God, no desire for God. We're consumed with the world. No love for God, no love for his word, no love for Christ. Just a, a love for the world, a living for the world, a love for sin. 
But when God begins to work in a person's life, they're brought to a painful knowledge of their sin, of the seriousness of their condition, the seriousness of the law. And God brings into their experience a, a realization of the danger that they're in. You know, and there's, a, there's an intensity to that. You know, one preacher used the following illustration. Imagine two people are living in a house and suddenly the house is engulfed in a serious fire. One of the people in the house sees the fire and watches the smoke and the flames and, you know, laughs it off and says, well, you know, this is nothing. Who cares about, you know, a few flames and a bit of smoke? Who, who cares about that? But the other person says, wait, this fire is serious. We could bring the house down. We, we could be finished. We need to get out. Now, that's the question, who's the wiser? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Or it should be. The sensible one is the second one, to realize what it means to be in a burning house. That's the start of getting out of it. If you don't even know you're in the burning house and you don't know the dangers of the burning house, well, you're likely to stay and to perish in it. But if you realize the dangers of being in a place which is being burnt down, then at least there is some hope of getting out. That is the case with God's moral law. And the way in which God takes people out of the danger is gracious intervention to show them the reality of their condition, to make their consciences tremble before him. They are afraid and they cry to God for mercy. You know, like the Philippian jailer, standing trembling, he says, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? Like those on the day of Pentecost as as Peter was preaching, what did they cry? What must we do to be saved? You see, their the consciences were pricked with that sense of guilt. You know, you think of even uh, Paul or Saul, as he were, on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, the occasion of his conversion. Jesus says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks. And those pricks were his conscience. God was dealing with him. And surely that is what is meant there. God has been convincing him of his dangerous condition before he was brought to find Christ. And that's what Paul is speaking of. It was through the law as a schoolmaster, convincing him, convicting him, that he became to be dead to the law. And you say, well, what does it mean to be dead to the law? Well, let me give you an illustration that will help. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 7. And uh, we'll just look at the opening few verses. Romans 7. And it's exactly the same principle here. And Paul uses an illustration in terms of marriage to help us understand. And basically, to summarize the opening four verses, it speaks of a, a woman being married to her husband, and she is under his jurisdiction. That's what the law of God says. That a woman who is married is under the jurisdiction of her husband, under his authority. Now, if the woman goes off with another man whilst in that state, she's classed as an adulteress, but not if the first husband is dead. And so Paul says, if it should be that the woman who is married, her husband dies, then she can be married legitimately, properly, without any reflection whatsoever on her own character. Now, he uses that as a picture to apply this gospel truth. You say, well, what is the application? Well, it's this, that you and I, all of us, all mankind, as we are born into this world, we are married, as it were, to the moral law. It is our husband. 
We are obliged to it. We are absolutely obliged to it. We are under the authority and the jurisdiction of the moral law. And if we break, then we are guilty before God and we will be punished if we don't escape from the consequences of our disobedience. But Paul says in these first few verses of Romans 7, there's a way out. And it's for death. It is to become dead to the moral law and to be married again. And you say, well, to whom can we be married so as we're free from the jurisdiction of the law? Well, the answer is clear. Christ, the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. And when we marry to Christ, you know, when as another way of saying, when we're united to Christ, when we come into union with Christ by faith, when we believe in Christ, when we trust in Christ, when we say to Christ, Lord, save my soul. Or when we say to Christ, oh Lord, I am, I am wretched, I am fallen, I am a, a lost sinner. Oh God, please have mercy upon me. You know, when that is your attitude to the Lord Jesus Christ, then he will marry you to himself. He will take you into union with himself, and you are in Christ. You are under Christ. You are no longer bound to the moral law as a covenant of works. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. You know, my dear friend, that's what Paul is saying. He says, I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. And that's why he then goes on to say, back over in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There's that union with him. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I'm united to Christ. I'm no longer under the condemnation of the moral law. You know, when we're unconverted, and if it's your state tonight, we are under that authority. We are under that accusing power, that condemnation. All of us are guilty. All of us are condemned as long as we stay in that unconverted condition. So how do we escape? By being united to Christ. By believing in Jesus Christ. By being united to him by faith. He has to become our husband. And when that happens, then the, the jurisdiction, the authority, the condemning power of the first husband is gone. And it's gone forever. And thank God that it is. And that's why he says elsewhere, and you look at Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for them who believe. You know, to believe in Christ is to enter into all of the benefits of his blessed life and his blessed death and his blessed resurrection. And we have to be united to Christ by faith alone so that his satisfaction of the law's penalty becomes ours. And all the benefits that he secured, all of his saving work, all of the consequences of that is given to us. And God's law no longer condemns us to eternal death because that sentence has been executed fully in Christ at Calvary. That's a staggering thing. Christ took the punishment and the condemnation that I deserved, that I might go free. 
And if we are in him, the law's sentence has been fulfilled for us. Condemnation no longer hangs over our heads because Jesus bore the punishment for our crime, our sin, so the law can condemn us no longer. There'll be no more uh, looking for that account. It has been done. It has been dealt with. We have been declared righteous in Christ. The law can no longer rightly condemn us or crush us. The power of sin is broken in our lives. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm crucified with Christ. I've died to the law, and I'm alive to God, alive to Christ. Do you know, we sing these words, but I wonder if we really understand them. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring, here it is, the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Is that your testimony? Do you know how wonderful those words are? The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. No condemnation. Why? My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. What a wonderful state to be in. And it's all of his grace. The moral law with me has now no condemning power. Now, does that mean then that you can live any way you want? Well, no. And that's the last thing we'll consider. Those dead to the law now love the law. That's the thing of it. You know, Paul says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's now living to God. He now wants to please God. You know, when we were unconverted, we hated God's law. We resented it. You know, why, why should we keep the Lord's day? Why should we not just steal and take what we want? Why shouldn't we just lie our way out of difficulties? Why should we not do these things just because God says so? I don't want God. I don't want his law. I want to live my own way and do my own thing. But when we become joined to Christ by faith, as one explains, we don't become anarchists. When we're saved, united to Christ, we want to do those things which please the Lord. How do we know what pleases the Lord? He tells us in his word. And we want to obey his word. And we have a desire to honor God in all things. And our heart's desire is to glorify him in every way, to submit to his truth and his ways. Now, we stumble, of course we do. But our heart's direction is for his glory. And our longing is for that day when we will be delivered from all sin and we will be able to worship and serve without hindrance. And so we're dead to the law, we're delivered from the condemnation of the law, but then as we are saved by grace, we love the things that God loves and we want to live to his glory. Friend, as I close, you need to be clear. You can't have this love for God by trying to keep God's law. It's impossible. If you're still under the delusion that you can make yourself right with God through your own efforts, your own goodness, your own decency, your own morality, and so on. You know, if you think you can do all that sufficiently to satisfy a holy God, you need to stop deceiving yourself. You can't do it. You can't do it now or ever. It's called legalism. And it condemns everyone in its grasp. It saves no one. 
Do not look to law-keeping to make you right with God. As Martin Luther came to see, you cannot get to heaven that way at all, the way of good works, etc. There's no gospel there. The only way to get to heaven is by believing in the crucified Savior, trusting in the righteousness which Christ has obtained by his holy life and the blood that he shed for me upon the cross. Christ alone. Christ alone, our hope in life and death. And when you're brought into that saving relationship with him, your whole life, your whole perspective, your whole purpose, your whole priorities are changed. And you'll love the Lord. And you'll love his word. And you know you'll even love his people. And you'll love his cause. Because you'll want to see him glorified. That's what Paul is saying. You know, I want you to be clear, dear friends, this night. You need to be saved from the condemnation of God's law. And the only way is through trusting Jesus Christ for yourself. Trusting him for yourself to turn from your sin, turn from all of your hope in self, and trusting him. And that's the thing that will save you. That is the one who will save you. Are you dead to the law? Are you united to Christ? Are you a debtor to mercy alone? There is no greater position to be in. The law is dealt with. We are dead to it, alive to God in Christ, and living to the glory and honor of his name, and anticipating that day when we shall be with him in the glory to come. May you be there by his grace. Amen.